You know, this past week we have seen the um, news of the outbreak of the coronavirus. Um, it's been in the news now for a few weeks, but it has really been escalating um, as we see worldwide, and we're starting to see cases pop up here in the United States. And, you know, when these um, tragedies hit, we often see both the best and the worst of men. And uh, right now, if you look around, you will see a lot of arguing, a lot of bickering, um, a lot of misinformation uh, from between countries, uh, within countries, uh, within political parties, um, whatever it may be. But what you see is no shortage of just hateful speech, uh, derogatory speech, um, a lot of um, debates and arguments and disagreements that are done in a way that um, quite simply does not glorify God. You know, and it's a reminder to us that as we look around the world and we see some of the things that are being said, we see some of the accusations that are being hurled about, um, that we're reminded that we're living in a world that does not know God and does not honor God. And for us, we understand that we as Christians, though we are mightily blessed to be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, um, we understand that we also have a responsibility to glorify him with our lives. We have a responsibility to grow and to be able to show ourselves to be different from the world. And when we look around and we see the evidences of division and hate and, and all the things that happen in the world, we must remind ourselves of what God calls us to do what God calls us to be. And so once again, as we return to this passage in Ephesians, we are going to be looking at this section in Ephesians where Paul talks about what it means to walk not like the world. Literally, he says, do not walk like the Gentiles. But he's talking about those who did not know God. Uh, those, as we'll review some of the scriptures again, those who operated according to a feudal mind, who were darkened in their understanding. But you, if you have put your faith into the Lord Jesus Christ, you do not have a feudal mind. You have a new mind that has been renewed in Christ. If you have put your faith into Jesus Christ, you are not darkened in your understanding. You are illuminated in your understanding. And so if you have put your faith into Jesus Christ, there should be a very distinct result in how you behave both within the church and to the world. We should be able to stand apart from the rest of the world, not on the basis of self-righteousness, but we stand apart based upon the righteousness of God and in the way that he is sanctifying us and growing us according to his truth. And so this morning is a continuation of last week's message, and it's titled Walk Not Like the World, and it's really part two. I should have put part two up there. Um, our text is going to be Ephesians 4, 25 to 32, but really, we're not going to get all the way to 32. We're going to go to verse 28, and then we'll cover the rest um, the next time I'm here in the pulpit to teach it. And our purpose this morning is to learn what it means practically to learn what it means practically that we put on the new self, which is what Paul says that we are to do. In fact, it says that we have done that from the time of Christ. We'll see that verse in a moment. But what it means practically that we put on the new self created in Christ, that we may be more like Christ, that we may be more like Christ. And in this outline, Paul is going to give us six practical implications for putting on the new self that will make us more like Christ. We will cover the first three this morning. We'll cover the first three this morning. And so just to review once again the start of this section, which starts in verse 17, and we studied this last week. We're going to read through this once again, verses 17 to 19. Paul says this, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And then as we proceed to verse 20, we read, But you did not learn Christ in this way, as talking to us as the church. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. 
and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So what this is describing here, starting in verse 20, it says, you did not learn Christ in that way. In contrast to the way that the Gentiles walk, Paul reminds us that you did not learn Christ in this way. Well, how did we learn Christ? In verse 22, he says that in reference to your former manner of life, and this is really talking about the past, that you already laid aside the old self, which is being corrupted in, the accordance, in accordance with the lust of deceit. And verse 24 says, you put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. So we are to lay aside the old self. We are to put on the new self created in Christ. The question for us as Christians is, what does that mean? How does that work out practically in our lives? And Paul is going to tell us. Now, see, these things have already happened, that you died to your old self and you were created in a new self at the time that you put your faith into Jesus Christ. But notice verse 23 says that you need to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, meaning that your growth in Jesus Christ starts with your understanding of God's will in his word. And so we learn from God's word how we are to grow in Christ's likeness. And so Paul now is going to give us these examples, six examples, three of which we will look at this morning. As we take a look at verses 25 through 28, Paul says this, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. And then continuing on to verse 29, he says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So that's the section that we're looking at, but we're going to look specifically at verses 25 through 28. Those verses that we just read through, verses 25 to 28 will be our text for this morning. And our first section for this morning is to speak truth with one another, to speak truth for one another. Once again, Paul's going to give us six practical implications for putting on the new self that will make us more like Christ. And the first is to speak truth with one another. So as we take a look at verse 25, we see this, therefore, laying aside falsehood. So let me just stop right there as we think about falsehood. He goes on to say, speak truth, each one of you to his neighbor. And obviously we understand, we look at this and we're understanding that we have to tell, speak truth. We want to be truthful to one another. We don't want to tell lies. And yes, that would be true. We don't want to lie to one another. We want to be truthful. We want to be honest with one another. But this is saying more than simply just don't tell a lie. See, Paul starts off here. He says, therefore. Well, why does he say therefore? Therefore builds off the prior verse, which says that you have put on the new self. You have put aside the old self. You have put on the new self. You're being renewed in your mind. Therefore, you are laying aside all falsehood. And when he talks about falsehood, he's talking about anything and everything that is false. Anything and everything that is false. And let me just take you to this verse from John chapter 8, right there on the screen. John chapter 8 from verses 42 to 45. We are reminded, we are reminded that Satan himself is the father of lies. Starting in verse 22, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, and he's talking to the Jewish leaders, he's saying, If God were your father... You would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he who sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? Is it because you cannot hear my word? 
And proceeding on to verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. So when we think about putting aside falsehood and speaking the truth, it's a reminder that even from our nature, we were once followers of Satan. We saw that earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, looking at that, and I can't go to these verses enough, but starting in verse 1, he talks about what we were like before salvation. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of this spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So he says we we followed in verse two that we formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. And that is who? Satan. Before we were saved, before we put our faith into Jesus Christ, we followed after Satan. And verse three, Paul lumps in the rest of the Jews with them, saying among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath. So Paul is saying even all the Jews who had not truly come to faith in Christ, who had not truly put their faith in God, were the same way. They were following after Satan. And you even remember when you go back to the Garden of Eden, how does Satan introduce himself? He introduces himself by speaking to Eve and saying, asking, did God really say? He basically caused Eve to doubt God's words. And when Eve said that if we eat from that tree, even if we touch it, we're going to die. What does Satan say? He says, you will surely not die. From the very beginning, Satan called God a liar. That is how he operates. And that's, it. that's exactly how we operate when we operate according to lies. So it's not simply just telling the truth and not telling a lie. But putting aside falsehood is about putting aside all that is not true about God and embracing what is true about God. It's about embracing not just what is true, but embracing what, is what I would call true truths. What are true truths? True truths are everything that we find in the word of God from God. Everything that we read in the Bible reveals to us what is really true. And unfortunately, in this day and age, in the, in even our school systems and, uh, and kids that are going to the public schools and kids that end up going to public universities, unfortunately, they're going to be exposed to a lot of things that are called truth but are not truth. There are nothing more than lies. And so we want to be aware of that because putting aside falsehood means putting aside anything that is contrary to God, anything that is contrary to Scripture. And so as we move back to Ephesians 4.25, we see that laying aside falsehood, this is what we are to do. We are to speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. Each one of you with his neighbor. Now this is a quote out of uh, Zechariah, I think it's uh, Zechariah 8.16. But Zechariah 8.16, if you were to go to your Bible, it doesn't say speak truth each one of you with his neighbor. It says speak truth each one of you to one another. But what Paul here is doing, he's quoting a Greek translation of the Old Testament, which talks about the neighbor. And this is not saying that you need to emphasize speaking truth with your literal neighbor, though you should. This is talking about speaking truth to one another, because as you see at the end of verse 25, for we are members of one another. We are members of one another. Your exercise in speaking truth and laying aside that falsehood starts here in the household of God. It starts here in your encouragement of one another. Uh, the reason why we would have the Old Testament say each one of you to his neighbor is because in Old Testament, in the Old Testament Israel, we were talking about a nation that lived with each other and all of the nation were to obey God. But here Paul makes it clear when he says speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, he goes on to say the reason why, because we are members of one another. We are members of one another. Now, the question is, when he says members, what does he mean? 
Well, it means that we are all members of the body of Christ. We are all members of the body of Christ. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 to 14. Paul writes this, For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, for we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. So when he makes references to members, he is talking about those who belong to the body of Christ. So for us, this, t- this is referring to everyone here who belongs to this church. We are all members of one another. And that, and that uh, word for member, if you go on in 1 Corinthians 12, you can do a study of your own. But Paul goes on to make a comparison between the members and various body parts of the body. Right? The eyes and the ears and the hands and the feet. We all serve different functions within the body, but we're all part of the same body. We are all part of the same organism. We are one new man in Christ together as the church. And the book of Ephesians has been emphasizing the body of Christ. I mean, I've been saying this over and over again, but there's no such thing as a Christian operating without the church. Christians are saved in order to serve as part of the church. They are baptized into the body of Christ, which is the church. And we look at Ephesians. We see several verses there. We see three verses, Ephesians 4, 4. Paul said, there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called in one hope of your calling. And then in chapter 4, verse 12, he talks about the fact that all these positions of people, whether it's apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, Christ gave these men to the church for this reason in verse 12, for the equipping of the saints. And who are the saints? That's right. All of you, each one of you. If you are saved, you are a saint. So you are to be equipped for this purpose, for the work of of service, meaning we're all to be a part of ministry. We're all to be ministering to one another in some way, shape, or form. And we do it to the building up of the body of Christ. So you see that emphasis again upon the body and how we are to build one another up. And then once again in verse 16, Paul says this, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. Now he's saying that each of us has a role to play in the church. Each of us serve as a different part of the church. But at the end of verse 16, you see, you see that it causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So it's unmistakable that when we look at the book of Ephesians and we look at other letters that especially Paul has written, we see an emphasis upon the building up of the church. And I've said this before, but whenever someone tells me that they're a Christian, but they don't go to a church, that they're comfortable being at home, they're okay with with Jesus, they, they can listen to sermons on the radio, they can watch sermons on TV. My first response is that you don't understand the Bible if you think that is a Christian life. Because the Bible makes very clear this emphasis upon the body, that we are to be together in Christ. We are not only to be together, it's not just showing up on Sundays, but it's serving one another. It's serving one another. But going back to chapter 4, verse 25, We see that rationale once again, looking at verse 25 as a whole. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. We are members of one another. So once again, when we consider just how important the church is, when we consider the fact that we are members of the body of Christ, when we consider the fact that we are called to minister to one another, it should be an absolute no-brainer that we are laying aside falsehood and we are speaking truth to each other. And when I say we are speaking truth to each other, obviously you need to be honest with one another. You, You need to tell the truth to each other. You know, you also need to be willing to commit and let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. If you say you're going to do something, do it. If you can't do something, say that as well. You know, but you want to be honest with each other. You want to, to, to serve one another and you serve one another with the truth. But you also, you also, as you talk to one another, you want to encourage one another with the truth of the Bible. I was just talking to a young man earlier this week. Um, And we were going through the scriptures. I was walking through the gospel with him. And then he brought up this concept of karma. 
right? What goes around comes around. You've heard that, right? What goes around comes around. Uh, This is one of those examples where we can say something and not realize how unbiblical that statement is. Now, in a sense, we can say what goes around comes around because there is ultimately judgment. We know that. There will be final judgment. And all of us, all of us either have had our sins paid for or will pay for our sins in eternity in hell. And so in that sense, you could say that is true. But that idea of what goes around comes around is the idea that in this life, those who do bad will have bad happen to them. And we just look around the world. We know that's not true. I mean, that might be true some of the times. We might see someone who is doing evil that that is finally caught or is finally paying the, the penalty for their crimes. But we also see a lot of examples of, for instance, young children who are taken from us too early. We see examples of people who are wealthy, who die wealthy, and they just die of natural causes. You know, the idea is this, is that even that saying that we might say to each other, that's not biblical. That's not even true when we look around. You can't apply that to each and every person. You know, so we want to be able to examine the things that we say and understand where they come from and instead speak truth to one another. Because here's the thing, when people say what goes around comes around, they usually use that either to show that justice has been done for someone who has done wrong or to try to give encouragement that someone will eventually pay for what they have done. Look, if we were to speak truth to each other in that kind of situation, the real truth is this, trust in God. He is sovereign over all circumstances. And God causes all things to come together for good. That's Romans 8, 28. We want to be able to affirm that with each other, that God causes all things to come together for good, but not just for everyone, but specifically those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So when you encourage one another, encourage one another with the actual truth of God. And I, sadly, I hear stories of believers who will go to tarot card readers or palm readers you know, or check their, check their, you know, look at the newspaper for you know, the astrology section. You know, the, the, the Greek horoscope kind of system. Well, I'm a Gemini, so that means this and this and this. I have Christians explaining that to me. Well, I'm a Gemini, and that means I'm this way and that way. No, no, you're not. If you put your faith into the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a new person in Christ. And so we need to speak truth with one another. And, and, and no, I, I'm not joking with you. There, there's, there was actually a church in Atlanta that, that hired um, a medium. Well, what's a medium? A medium is someone who supposedly speaks to the dead. Hired onto the church staff so that church members could speak to their deceased relatives. You, you realize, you go to the Old Testament, mediums were to be stoned. You know, and, and what, what are we saying with that? When you entertain those things, you're saying that there is something more than what God provides that I need. I need to be able to speak to the dead in order for me to be able to, 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 to move on, to be able to have closure. No, you don't need that. What you need is God's truth. And you need to just trust in God's truth. You know, and that's why we have the biblical counseling series. We have the biblical counseling series so that we can learn about all that God's word says to us. And, you know, one of my purposes uh, with that first part of biblical counseling that I'm going through, you know, and hopefully those of you who have attended, you see this. What, what, one of my goals with biblical counseling, I want to show you just how amazingly thorough the scriptures are in addressing our problems. You know, it's one thing to say that the scriptures are perfect and they're sufficient and they're authoritative. But it's another to actually see the ways that they are authoritative and sufficient and perfect. You know, and so we have that gathering, we have that course in order for us to see firsthand all the ways that the scriptures really do apply to our lives and how we can use it to counsel one another and not have to lean upon worldly wisdom. And there are implications to speaking the truth. There are implications to living in the truth. Let me borrow a few verses just from 1 John. 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, John says this, If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You see what John is saying there? You are a liar if you say, if, if you, say you have fellowship with Jesus Christ and yet you walk in darkness. It's very complimentary to what Paul is saying. 
And then chapter 2, verse 4, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. And then chapter 4, verse 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar for the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You can't possibly love a God that you have not seen if you can't even love your fellow brothers and sisters whom you do see. We are here for one another. We are here to speak truth, to live out the truth, to be testimonies of the truth. We are laying aside the falsehood. We are laying aside the lies of, of, of Satan, who is the prince of the power of the air. And we are putting on Christ. We are a new man in Christ, and we are living according to the truth. That is what we are called to do. But we are not only to speak truth with one another. We see that very clearly in that verse. But we are also to deal righteously with anger. We are to deal righteously with anger. So looking at the next verse, verse 26, Paul says this, Be angry and yet do not sin. Be angry and yet do not sin. Now, this is a puzzling verse for a lot of commentators who look at this because it's strange to be commanded to be angry. And some have tried to explain this to to say that, oh, Paul is not commanding us to be angry. Instead, he's acknowledging that we're angry. In other words, go ahead and be angry and yet do not sin. Or he's making a statement that you're angry and he's trying to say, okay, you're angry, but do not sin. Well, no, I do believe that this is a command from Paul. He's saying, be angry and yet do not sin. Why would Paul say this? Well, I mean, thinking back to how he started verse 25, he talked about laying aside falsehood. And when we look around the world, there is no shortage of falsehood all around us, is there not? I mean, sometimes, sometimes all you got to do is just go onto Facebook and see what some of your non-believing friends are posting and watch your blood pressure go up, Right? You know, which, by the way, I mean, that's one reason to kind of curb your, you know, your attention to social media when that happens too much and you feel your blood starting to boil and getting upset because people are believing and pushing all this misinformation and they're denying the truth. You know, when we see lies being told, when we see falsehood being proclaimed, when we see God being dishonored, go ahead and be angry, but make sure you do not sin. When, when people are, are unjustly treated, when you are mistreated, when, when you receive something that you didn't deserve from another individual, it's okay, you understand that. Be angry and yet do not sin. Be angry and yet do not sin. Now later on in this passage, in verse 32, Paul, 30, 31 actually, in verse 31, Paul is going to identify anger as something we're supposed to put away. So if he says in verse 31, we're supposed to put it away, why would he say here that we should be angry? Well, I do believe these two verses are very complementary with one another, because if you look at the rest of verse 26, it says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. So here's the thing. We will experience anger because God is dishonored. We will experience anger because people are being wronged. We will experience anger because lies are being told. Because people are acting in greed and selfishness. We're going to experience anger because we see God being dishonored, being misrepresented. We're going to experience anger when you see people who faithfully proclaim Christ being treated like they are criminals. I just saw a video this past week of a university on the campus of, you know, in the state of Virginia, VCU. And uh, this, this preacher, this this. this, this Guy had a billboard where he was explaining the various atrocities in history, and uh, he was trying to point out the fact that we are all sinners. And, and we are all sinners, and he wants to show that the solution to sin is Jesus Christ. Someone took a video, uh, actually a partial video of this, and what I saw in the video were students in his face screaming at him. And uh, one, one young man, and really just adolescent in behavior, but he came and he knocked over the sign. He knocked over the sign, got in the old man's face and called him a Nazi and says, we kill Nazis here. And basically told him with, uh, profanity, with, with profanity to get off the campus. 
And someone shot that video, and, and what you see from the preacher is he's just standing his ground and he's just proclaiming the truth. He's not yelling. He, he's not pushing back. He's not threatening anyone. He's just proclaiming the truth. And then the person that took the video actually posted it and said, we need to get this racist off the campus. And he was referring to the preacher. This is the world that we're growing up in. This is the world that our kids are growing up in. And kids, when you go to universities, if you go to a public university, you're going to see this kind of hatred for the Bible and for God. And it is because of the depravity of man. It is because God in his nature hates man. And you're going to see it more and more clear as you go out to the universities, as you go out to college. Recognize the Bible is not blind to these things. God is not blind to these things. And those of us in Christ, we see that. And there's a righteous indignation. There's a righteous anger over that. And yet he says, yet do not sin. And not only that, do not let the sun go down on your anger. What does that mean? That means you need to resolve your anger quickly. How do you do that? Well, if it's anger between you and a fellow brother or sister in Christ, you need to go and reconcile. You need to go and and meet with that person, sit down and reconcile. And if that's not possible, you need to go to God in prayer. You need to go to God in prayer and and just just pray for the peace that surpasses all understanding. Philippians chapter 4, verses, I want to say, 4 through 7. The peace that surpasses all understanding. Because sometimes our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, they may not be willing to reconcile right away. You got to trust in the work of the Holy Spirit in that person and go to God and release that anger and remind yourself that we are in a sinful world and we are called to walk in holiness. So when he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger, it means resolve it quickly. And when you see examples, for instance, of this preacher who's being treated like he's a war criminal, remind yourself of what Jesus Christ said in John 15, 18. John 15, 18, Jesus Christ said, if the world hates you, guess what? It hated me first. And in fact, I often tell people, look, if you're a Christian, if you're out there doing God's work and the world is celebrating what you do, you're probably doing it wrong. Let me say that again. If you're out amidst the world and you're doing God's work and the world is celebrating what you're doing, you're probably doing it wrong. Because if, they, if you are truly doing God's work, they would respond with hate. This is exactly what we expect from the world because the world hates God. And to give you an example, if, if you were to travel the world, if you're going to tell people, I'm going to travel the world and I'm going to devote myself to feeding the hungry to helping the poor, to building shelters, to building orphanages, everyone will applaud you. Everyone. But if you do that and say, I'm doing it in order that they would know that the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ and everyone else is going to be condemned. Watch that applause turn into scoffing and anger and accusations. Folks, the gospel is not peaceful to those who reject God. It's exactly why we see and we live in a world in which is trying to silence the Bible, trying to silence churches. That's why we have our public school systems teaching sex ed laws that are saying that any religious institution that holds to a biblical view of male and female is guilty of spiritual abuse. They want to turn our children. They want to indoctrinate this world to be more and more against God. And is that really any surprise when we know from the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul said that everyone is following after the prince of the power of the air. Persecution is what we expect. But as we get angry, we cannot let that anger overtake us. Because I tell you, anger... If you've been around people that have lived angry lives, you can, you can actually see the effects of it on them physically. People who are angry, are not, are, 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 they age quick, more, more quickly. They're difficult to be around. Anger is a relationship killer. It's hard to have a pleasant relationship with people who are angry. And it's especially going to be hard for you to be able to share the word of God with any real credibility if you're always angry. 
You, you need to be able to resolve that anger and trust in God. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, if, if you happen to get angry and it's right at sunset, it doesn't mean that you need to resolve your anger in a millisecond. Okay, th- this is just to say that you need to resolve it quickly. And I know that this verse has been used often with couples, husbands and wives. If you get into a fight, oh, we need to resolve this before we go to sleep. We need to resolve this before we go to sleep. No, it says don't let the sun go down on your anger. You can resolve whatever you, you were arguing about later, but just don't be angry going to bed. You know, don't, be, don't let that anger overtake you and carry forward. You know, there may be times practically where you have to say, you know what, honey, let's, let's talk about this tomorrow. Let's talk about this later when we have more time to really go through this. But, but let's resolve right now not to be angry. Let's resolve right now to trust in the Lord and recognize that, that our sinfulness is at play here. So don't let anger overtake you. And not only that, but when you look at verse 27, this is important. No, actually, before I go to verse 27, let me just show you James 1, 19 to 20. James 1, 19 to 20, James says this, This you know, my beloved brethren... But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Why? Because verse 20 says, For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. We will never achieve the righteousness of God with our own anger. We achieve it by becoming more like Christ. And in terms of reconciling, we've got this from our Lord in Matthew 5, verses 21 to 24. Verse 21, Jesus says this, You have heard what the ancients were told. You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Jesus is pointing out there that anger in our heart is akin to murder of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And then you go on to verse 23. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, this is obviously talking about the Jew going to offer up a sacrifice in the, in the Old Testament law. If you are presenting your offering at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Now, obviously, we're not held to the laws of sacrifices. We don't have an altar where we bring our animals and sacrifice them. Though it is 4-H, it's a good opportunity for that. But um, we're not called to do that. But what we see here is the urgency of reconciliation. So if there is conflict between you and and another person, you need to go and reconcile. Uh, The the, the principle here of being reconciled with your brother and sister in Christ is not just limited to the Old Testament, but it applies to us even more so today. Be reconciled. And um, I'll I'll talk more about forgiveness um, in the next lesson. But in terms of forgiveness, recognize that even if even if someone has wronged you and hasn't asked for forgiveness, you can have a heart of forgiveness towards that person. You can have a heart of forgiveness, even if that person hasn't asked for it. All right. So you want to be able to let go of that anger. But here's. What's really significant as we return back to Ephesians 4, it not only says be angry and yet do not sin, but in verse 27 it says, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Let me hammer home just how important this is. Because what Paul is saying here, this is not a separate command that's separated from the prior verse. This is connected to verse 26, this idea of be angry and yet do not sin. Be angry and yet do not sin, because if you let that anger fester, if you let it lead to sin, you have given the devil an opportunity. An opportunity for what? You know, this word for opportunity literally means a place. So it's almost like a place in your heart. You know, you have allowed the devil to disrupt your, your, your call to live a life of holiness. You, you have allowed the devil to disrupt your effectiveness for God's kingdom. You have allowed the devil to disrupt God's will for you in your life. And when the devil disrupts it, guess what? You are no longer effective for God's purposes. And that's when the devil has won. 
He can't take away your salvation. But I know some of you as believers, you've been harboring bitterness for a long time. There are things in your past that you cannot let go. And I tell you, as long as you cannot let them go, you are hindering your ability to move forward and actually grow in Christ and to do God's will. Because you are so wrapped up in the ways that you have been wronged. You are so wrapped up in the ways that that another brother or sister in Christ has done something that that person has done to you in the past. If you want to be more like Christ, if you want to be effective for his kingdom, you don't want to give the devil an opportunity. Don't let anger control you. Go to God. Give, Give it up in prayer. Stay focused upon what God wants out of you, not the things in the past. Because I tell you what, if Jesus Christ was always preoccupied with the things in the past, he would not have gone to the cross. He wouldn't have done it. If he ever stopped at any moment and said, wait a second, what is it that I really deserve? He would not have gone to the cross. If he ever stopped and looked at the way he was treated and asked, is this really worthy of who I am? He would not have gone to the cross. He suffered the ultimate shame in the worst possible way in order to bring us salvation. And for us, we're asked to forgive a lot less than what Jesus Christ did for us. We're asked to endure a lot less than what Jesus Christ endured on the cross. So put away that anger. Don't let it control you. And my last point for this morning, this is the third of six points. We'll cover the other three next time. First was to speak truthfully, truthfully with one another. The second was to deal righteously with anger. And the third is to work hard to bless others. To work hard to bless others. As we continue to verse 28, we see this. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good. Now, we look at this, and this seems like a no-brainer. Well, of course, don't steal. Look, I'm not a thief. You know, I don't go down to the liquor store and rob the liquor store. You know, I'm not going into people's houses and stealing their merchandise. But pay attention to all of this verse, because he says, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor. Now, that word for labor, this word is really to kind of push yourself to exhaustion. It's talking about putting all of your effort into something. It's to push yourself to the absolute limit. You are to work hard, in other words. And it says performing. And this work, word for performing is literally working. Working with his own hands what is good. And this reminds us that in this life, though you are saved in Christ and though your hope is in the future, whatever job you have been called to, you have been called to do it with all of your effort. You are to do it for the glory of God. Because I tell you what, if you go back to Genesis 2, and you can take this as an assignment, go back to Genesis 2, and you will see even before the fall, God had created Adam to cultivate the ground. Word, work was ordained by God even before the fall. So work is good. We are to work. Now, the reason why work is so hard is because of the fall. Because God said in chapter 3, and you can read that on your own, but chapter 3 even says that as a result of the fall, you are going to have to labor. You're going to have to toil. You're going to have to work hard for everything that you get. But wherever you are, wherever you're serving, and I know a number of you are retired, which is wonderful. But if you're retired, you know, I would ask you, what are you doing with your free time? What are you doing with the, with the strength and the resources God has given you? Now, I realize you're, you're not as, you don't have, you're not able to do as much as these younger kids. I, know, I realize that the older we get, the less we're able to do. But certainly there are ways that you can serve. There are certainly ways that you can help benefit the kingdom of God. And so there is a theology of work throughout the Bible that shows that work is a good thing. And we are to work hard. We are to perform with our own hands what is good. And when he says what is good, we're performing with our own hands what is good. That means we're devoted to actually good work. Well, we're doing work that is good. Okay, you're not, you're not working at the strip club. You know, you're, you're, not, you're not working as a drug dealer. You know, you're not working at, at distributing things that lead people into sin. 
but, but rather you're making an honest living. You're working hard with your own hands, producing what is good. And here's the purpose. At the end of verse 28, at the end of verse 28, it says this, so that, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Now, there's no sin in being wealthy. To, to have wealth, to have money, that itself is not a sin. But it's our attitude towards that wealth can, that can be sinful. If we make it the most important thing in our life, if we make it the source of coveting, if we turn it into an idol in our life, if we end up worshiping it, you know, that's a problem. And you can write down this. I don't have it up there, but you can write down 1 Timothy 6, 17. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, where Paul says, instruct those who are rich in this world. Instruct those who are rich in this world not to put their hope in their riches. You know, not to be haughty, not to put their hope in, in their riches, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with all things. You know, in that verse, Paul doesn't condemn those who are wealthy. He's just saying, don't put your hope into it. But not only that, but use that, use that wealth to bring about good. You know, I know the mission, the missionaries that we send out and, you know, we partner with a number of missionaries. We partner with a number of missionary organizations. You know, I'm looking at Gail Cheatwood and his uh, dental and uh, his dental and and vision missions. Um, Obviously, a lot of you contribute to that and that's good. You know, we want to be able to support those kinds of efforts. But also within the body of Christ, we want to be able to meet the needs of one another. You know, if there are those within the body of Christ, there are those who are here within the church that have needs, it glorifies God when others are meeting those needs. And so this is not to say that you can't use your wealth to enjoy things in life, but save some of that for those opportunities to help others. And for some of you, and I know this is true almost everywhere, I I would say everywhere, you know, stewardship of our money is is a hard thing. I know there's a lot of people that are in debt. There are a lot of people in debt uh, because you've made some poor decisions in your past and you're continuing to pay for it. You know, high credit card bills or loans that, that, that are difficult to pay off. You know, if that's your situation, get help for that. I mean, Maureen Lynn, I'm looking at Maureen. Maureen provides financial, financial advice to, to teach good financial stewardship principles. You know, if that describes you, if you're suffering with that, if you're struggling with that, you know, you can come talk to me and, uh, and, and we'll get something set up. But you want to be a good steward. You, you, you don't want the, the, the wealth that you obtain to go to waste. And one of the best ways you can use that wealth is not only providing for your needs, but helping to meet the needs of others in the church. You know, which, by the way, and I've forgotten to mention this each time, each time we have communion Each time we have communion, we do have a couple of trays in the back for the deacon's fund. You know, so as you walk out uh, this morning, um, the the deacon's fund, uh, they'll have a couple of trays on the table in the foyer. And that deacon's fund is actually for that purpose, that the money that goes to that deacon's fund, that allows us to meet the needs of people within the church if they come asking for help. And so that's an opportunity to give to that effort. But we have covered the first three of six practical implications of what it means to put on the new self. What it means to put on the new self. That we are laying aside falsehood and we are speaking truth with one another. And not just that what we say is true, but what we say is true and rooted in Scripture. That while we may experience anger about the unrighteousness in the world, we may experience anger about how God is slandered, about how God is misrepresented. We want to make sure that anger doesn't control us. Uh, We may be angry about about issues that come up, about things that happen between us and others, but we can't let that anger control us. Do not let the sun go down on that anger. Do not let it control you, because if it does, you give the devil an opportunity. You give the devil an opportunity to hinder your progress for the sake of Christ. And then finally, for us, we want to also make sure that we are laboring, doing what is good, and that the wealth that we have is not simply just for ourselves, but it's also for the opportunity to be able to share with those who are in need. Now, if you're here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, let me assure you that while these sounds like good principles to live by, these these sound like good principles that any community of any faith can live by, 
What I am telling you is this, that these commands that I shared with you this morning, they are impossible for man to keep. They are impossible for man to keep, and that includes yourself if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the power to be able to keep these commandments comes from the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is given to us as a result of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But you need to put your faith in Christ first. But what do we mean when we say put your faith in the Christ? We mean you put your faith in the Christ that he is the only way to heaven. And the reason why he is the only way to heaven is because all of us are sinners. All of us deserve judgment. All of us deserve to to be thrown into the pit of hell for eternity, for our sins. God is a holy God. He is a perfect God. He is a just God. He must punish us for our sins. Yes, he is loving, compassionate, and gracious. But he cannot cannot violate his own justice and righteousness. The only way he can uphold his justice and righteousness while showing us love, grace, and mercy is by sending his son and putting the punishment that we deserved upon his son so that his son would pay for your sins for all eternity. And so if you are without Christ, let me assure you that there is only one way to heaven. And that is by putting your faith into Jesus Christ as both Lord and Savior, by, by, taking a, by making that commitment, by making that commitment to follow him, to own that truth that he is the only way, to own that truth that you are now a disciple of Jesus Christ and you are giving your life to him. You are repenting of your former ways of life and you are following him. It doesn't mean that you're going to become perfect. None of us are. But it does mean that by the grace of God, you will continue to grow into greater Christ-likeness. You will grow to become more and more like his son, Jesus Christ, who was perfect in every way. And he was not just perfect, but he was humble. He was humble and he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so for us as believers, we always want to put our eyes towards Christ. He, he, was, he, he, provided, he is the provider and the perfecter of our faith. He is our example. We want to be more like him. And to be more like him, meaning, meaning that we have put aside the old and we are putting on the new. And we are being renewed in our mind through these truths in Scripture. Let us pray.